The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Thank you, ladies. Every time I hear that hymn, Just As I Am, I think about watching Billy Graham Crusades on television as the Crusade Choir would stand and sing, Just As I Am. And literally hundreds and sometimes thousands of people would come down uh, before the altar there and give their hearts to Christ. I uh, will always remember uh, those wonderful services. Take your copy of God's Word and turn in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, to Genesis 35. I'm going to read the first 15 verses this morning as we're going to be thinking about the family during the month of February. February is the love month, and we're going to be thinking about the family and the institution of the home. Uh, we need to understand that there are only three institutions God ordained in the Bible. There's the institution of government and the institution of the church, but the basic institution is the family. The family was the first thing that was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden in creation. And so we're going to be looking today at God's plan for the family. Let's stand together as we show our respect for the reading of God's Word. And this is the Word of the living God. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and called the place God of Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah, died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel. So Jacob named it Oak of Weeping. God appeared to Jacob again after, after he returned from Padanaran, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You will no longer be called Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a marker at the place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and anointed it with oil. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. You know, in my lifetime, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I have seen the family change. Uh, when I was a boy growing up, uh, we thought of a family as a mom and dad and children living in a home together. And that's certainly not the definition of the family today. In fact, most families, if you have a family that has mom and dad and, and the children born to them living in that home, uh, you are an exceptional family. We have blended families. There's nothing wrong with that. I thank God 
uh, that we have blended families. I thank God for godly blended families. Uh, I thank God for uh, single parents who may be single because of a divorce. Uh, we have two moms in our church that are single, and they have adopted children. And I salute them. They're a family. Uh, by the way, if you're a widow or if you're single, never been married, you're a family. God loves you. Jesus never married. Jesus never had a family. Some preachers say it's God's will for everybody to get married. I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that God teaches if you are married, it's God's will that you stay married uh, to the person you married uh, when you were young. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about the wife of our youth, and, and so I'm thankful for that. But today's family in no way represents the family unit of the 1950s when I was growing up. Uh, we just don't see that much anymore. Jacob in the book of Genesis is the first sign of a dysfunctional family that needed revival. Now, uh, you remember the first man ever born killed his brother, the second man ever born, in an argument over worship. We talked about that on Right to Life Sunday. Dysfunctional families are nothing new. And if your family is not dysfunctional, I can tell you it is by the grace of God. Uh, because it takes God to hold a family together. The devil hates the home because God loves the home, and the devil desires to destroy homes. The devil, if he can't destroy it from without, he'll destroy it from within, and we need to understand that. And so as we look at Jacob and his family, by the way, uh, his family, it says here, his family and all that were with him. That's your household. Those that live in your house that may not be kin to you, if they live in your house, they're part of your family. I know one time when Scotty was a senior in high school, uh, we actually had three boys living in our basement. Uh, I thought about calling the Alabama Baptist Children's Home and asking them to declare me a branch campus. But we had two guys from the church who whose parents didn't have room for them. One of them, his dad had gotten married and they didn't have an extra room and he said, I'd, I'll have to sleep on the couch. And uh, we had a, a bedroom downstairs and a hide a bed in the den downstairs. And so uh, they went down there and that, it was kind of like a boy's dormitory. And, uh, and I still, those two boys, in fact, before the end of that summer, there was a third boy that came in. So we actually had four boys living down there, and Jake and Mary and I lived upstairs. But uh, they were part of our household. When we went to church, they went to church. That was the rule. If you don't come to church, you don't live in the preacher's house. That was the other rule. And so they came to church. But when somebody is in your house, they become a part of your household, whether they're any blood kin to you or not. And this is Jacob and all that were with him. But notice it's a family in crisis, and we see several signs of that. First of all, there was idolatry. Now, you have to go back in the book to see this. But Jacob was leaving. He was going back to Canaan. And as he left, the wife that he loved so much, Rachel, decided that she would steal her father's household gods. So she stole her father's idols, and she put them in her saddlebag on her camel. And when her father came looking for them, uh, he had them stop, and he looked through all the tents, and he looked through all the, the things that they had packed to carry back to Canaan, and he could not find his household gods. And he realized he had not searched the camel that Rachel was riding on, and she said, you can't search this uh, because it's my time. 
And so he did not insist on searching, and she had hidden those idols. She lied to her daddy. She stole his idols, and then she lied to him about what, where they were and about what was going on in her life. So there was idolatry. Now Rachel had taken Laban's household gods, put them in the saddlebag of the camel, and sat on them. Laban searched the whole tent but found nothing. So he went back thinking, well, I guess somebody else took them besides Rachel, and they were with Rachel all the time. Now there's idolatry today. Uh, we have a program, one of the most popular programs on television is called An American Idol. And every year there are people that want to be the American Idol for that year. And a lot of times when people become the American Idol, uh, they end up a as something to me that's disgraceful. Uh, sometimes there's been a, a clean, pure-looking young lady on there, and she wins American Idol. And then they put her through all the star things, and the next time you see her, uh, she, she's dressed that's not fit for mixed company. Uh, she's doing vile moves as she sings. Uh, that's American Idol. Uh, if you say, we don't have idols in America, preacher, you know what I found out when I woke up this morning? This is not just Groundhog Day. Some of y'all hadn't even thought about that. Have you wished somebody happy Groundhog Day today? And in case you missed it, the groundhog in Pennsylvania saw his shadow, so that means six more weeks of winter weather. I hope that's just for the ones in Pennsylvania. I hope the Birmingham groundhog didn't see his shadow with all the, with all the clouds around. But I found out this is not just Groundhog Day. This is what Groundhog Day? Super Groundhog Day because of the Super Bowl tonight. Isn't that something? For years we've had Groundhog Day, but for the very first time in history, we have Groundhog Day and the Super Bowl on the same Sunday. And so it becomes Super Groundhog Day. You say, well, preacher, aren't we calling off the activities at the church tonight because of the Super Bowl? Not on your life. Not on your life. What we do here is more important than a football game. You say, well, you're just saying that because Alabama or Auburn's not playing. I don't care if they were playing each other. Uh, what we do here is eternally significant. What they do there is temporally significant. Well, we have idolatry in America. We have injustice in America. Notice what happened. And by the way, uh, this ha that happened before chapter 34. But if you read chapter 34 of Genesis, read it very carefully, you will not find God's name mentioned one time in all those verses. That's why his family was in crisis. You see, God told him, get back to Canaan. And when he got back to Canaan, he just barely crossed in to the northern part of Canaan. And none of the land there had yet been settled by Abraham or Isaac. And so instead of going back to where Abraham and Isaac had been, Jacob decides, I like Shechem, and I'm just going to live here. So he bought, he took money, he was wealthy, and he bought a place in Shechem. Now here's the problem with that. God said, I've given you the land of Canaan. And there's a part in the land of Canaan where your father and your grandfather had been, but Jacob didn't want to go back there because he had wronged his brother Esau and he was afraid of his brother. So he settled down in Shechem and bought him a piece of property. And after he settled in Shechem, nothing good happened. In fact, there was injustice in Genesis 34, 1 and 2. Dinah, Leah's daughter, one of his wife's uh, daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, a prince of the region, saw her, he took her and raped her. Now, that would not have happened if Jacob had done what God had told him to do and gone back to where Abraham and Isaac had been. But because he chose, he decided without God's decision to help him, he would stay there. 
there was injustice done to his daughter. Now, she was an innocent victim, but her dad was guilty because he had, should have done what God had told him to do. And then there was iniquity. On the third day, while they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. Now these, if you remember the story of Jacob, he had several wives and several concubines, and uh, Rachel was his favorite wife, and, and she gave him Joseph and Benjamin, uh, but he had other sons and had daughters with other women. And so two of Dinah's brothers, one of them is Levi, by the way, and let me remind you that from Levi would come all of the priests of Israel. The Levitical priesthood furnished the workers for the tabernacle and the temple. They had to be in Levi's line, and Levi was a murderer. He was so mad at the men of Shechem, uh, they decided they, that when uh, Shechem wanted to marry their sister, they said, you can't marry her because you've never been circumcised. And he said, well, I'll be circumcised. And they said, well, not just you, all of the men of the city need to be circumcised. So they all submitted themselves to circumcision. And on the third day after they had done that, while they were still in pain, while they were in, incapacitated, two men, Simeon and Levi, went into the city of Shechem and killed every man in the city because their sister had been defiled. You see, that was an injustice. The one who did that should have been punished. But they went far beyond what the law would call for. And they killed every man in the city. And you can read this in chapter 34. Jacob is upset. You know what he's upset about? He's upset because of his reputation. He's upset because he's saying, what will all these other cities think about us? They'll think we're nothing but a bunch of murderers. Why did you do this? Now all these cities are going to come after us, and we're not enough to defend ourselves. They will slaughter us. This was a family in crisis. I don't know what your family is going through right now. There probably are some families in crisis right here in this room today. It would be highly unusual for there not to be at least two or three, maybe more families in a state of crisis in this service today. What happens when a family is in crisis? Notice the first four words, chapter 35. God said to Jacob. You see, God's not mentioned in Genesis 34. And in Genesis 34, everything that happens is bad. Some of the things that happened before are bad. But in the very first word of Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, I want to tell you, if your family is in crisis, I have good news. God is always on the side of the family. He instituted the family. He instituted the home. He instituted the fact that the father is to be, be the priest of the home. He is to be the one who leads the home. And no matter how dysfunctional your family may be right now, it can be changed from dysfunctional to be a complete family in Christ if you follow these steps. Notice 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. When your family is in crisis, God has the answer for your problems. And notice what he said to Jacob. First of all, God said, 
get up. Now Jacob was being commanded to leave the place where his life had become a mess instead of a miracle. Now we love it when we hear about miracles in people's lives. We love it when we hear about divine healings. We love about it. We love it when we hear about things that happened this past week in, in the storm. There were people who literally uh, were like angels. They went around helping people. Uh, you know, there's something about, about something like a crisis that brings out the best in some people. Now sometimes it brings out the worst in others, but I'm thankful for those that it brings out the best in and there comes a time when, when, we, when Jacob had been moaning and complaining and talking to his children, what have you done? We're going to be killed. And finally God said, get up. There were times in the Bible when somebody was praying and God said, I've heard enough of your praying. Get up and do something. If there are problems in your family, you need to get up. You need to own it. And men, let me say this. Most of the time there are problems in the home it does not begin with an idolatrous wife like Rachel. It does not begin with rebellious children like Levi and Simeon. But it begins with dad. Because God has told us, you are to be the priest of your house. You are to be the one that sets the example. And let me just say this, and I don't, I don't want you to think I, I'm mad, but just, just let me point something out. Our service starts at 9.15. It's in the bulletin at 9.15. It's in the Pelham City News at 9.15. It's on everything we publish at 9.15. And some of you don't ever get here until 9.30. And you think we started early. No, we didn't. You were late. Now, let me, let me pick on my good friend Jim Miner here a minute. Jim, if, if next year Alabama and Auburn play at, Jer, at Jer, and, uh, Bryant-Denny, don't they? And so if I had a ticket, Jim, on the 50-yard line, and I'm an Alabama fan, but because I'm magnanimous and gracious, I invite my friend Jim, who's an Auburn fan, to go to the Alabama-Auburn game. Jim, what time do you want to get there? Early. First quarter? Before the first quarter? What about the coin toss? You want before the coin toss? The pregame show. You want to be there for that? What about when the teams warm up? Okay. When they open the gate two hours before the kickoff, do you want to be there? I'm not going to take you. <laughs> I'm going to watch it on television like the rest of it. Now, men, listen to me. I love Jim. I pick on him all the time, but he knows I love him. Listen. Whose responsibility is it to see that your family gets to church on time? Whose is it? Man, the man, okay? Now, that was a good place for you men to say amen right there. It's the man's place to see that his family gets to church on time. That's the puniest amen I have ever heard. My dogs bark louder than that for a milk bone. It's the man's place to see that his family get to the house of God on time. Amen. All right, that's better. Thank you, ladies, for joining in. I appreciate it. Men weren't helping me very much. I'm going to have to preach on this for about an hour because you, you men aren't getting it. I'm drilling, but the core is thick right here. I know it is. Listen, folks, God told Jacob, you get up. And, men, I want to tell you this. When there are problems in the home, and I've had to say this, so many times in my marriage. We're happily married. 
we've been married this year will be 43 years. And two of them were the happiest years of my life. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. When our, when our marriage wasn't happy, do you know whose fault it was? It was mine. And you can ask my wife. I have said this time and time again, honey, the problem with us is me. Because God appointed me, not just to be pastor of this church, but God appointed me to be the shepherd of my family. And I am to make sure my family's in church on time. I'm to make sure that my children bring their Bibles to Sunday school. I'm to make sure that my children are taught and trained in the ways of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, some of you guys are missing a great, great blessing. We have a wonderful thing called Bible Drills. To me, it is the best discipleship program this church has. I've preached this for at least 10 years now. We have some of the best workers with our Bible Drills. And yet, me saying that, not very many people avail themselves of enrolling their children in Bible Drills. How do you expect them to know the Word of God if we don't teach them that they need to come and learn about the Word of God? Get up time for some of us men to get up. Go to Bethel and settle there. God had appeared to Jacob in a miraculous way at Bethel back in Genesis 28. Jacob saw angels going up and down into heaven and back. By the way, we used to call it Jacob's Ladder. The, the uh, Holman Christian Standard calls it a staircase. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a ladder or a staircase. Angels are going up and down into heaven on it. And he, and he met God there. Uh, God renewed the covenant there with, Ab that, with uh, Jacob that he had made with Abraham and Isaac. But Jacob had not been obedient, and God reminded him how important Bethel was. I hope you have a Bethel in your life. Phil, I think you have a Bethel in your life. I think it's the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, Phil, he was a good Methodist. Been visiting our church, and I went to visit Phil and Lauren talked to them about their salvation, and they both said they were saved. I believed them. I told Phil, I said, well, you be a Baptist, I just need to dunk you. That's all I need to do. I, so I dunked Phil. And uh, I want to tell you, Phil is a hard guy to dunk because he's so tall. Listen, I, I, I baptize people that weigh 350 pounds without a problem if they're shorter than me. But if they're taller than me, I have a problem with them. And I had to watch because I didn't want to hit Phil's head on the, on the steps of the baptistry and knock him out while I was baptizing him. But I baptized Phil, and he became a good Baptist. And then, lo and behold, we get tickets to something called Promise Keepers. And we go on Friday night, and we're up in the top level of the Georgia Dome. If you've ever been up there, it's not really a hard ceiling up there. There's some kind of fabric up there. And one of the worst thunderstorms in the history of Atlanta, Georgia, hits. And thunder and lightning's coming on. And about that time, we hear a pop. And all the speakers in front of us are knocked out. And they have a screen where they're putting the words up there. And I couldn't see the words because there was a beam in front of the screen. And I sat up there. I didn't understand what they were singing. They might as well have been singing in an unknown tongue. They might as well have been preaching in an unknown tongue. Somebody said, the only thing I think I understand, I probably misunderstood this, was God is a red-hot chili pepper. I still hadn't figured out what that had to do with anything, but that was the only thing I heard. And I'm going to tell you, the only thing I was blessed by was we had a little break, and I turned to some of the guys on the very back row of the top of the Georgia Dome, and I said, where are you all from? They said, we're from Birmingham. I, I said, we're from Pelham. 
And I said, where do y'all go to church? And they said, Homewood Church of Christ. And I said, Church of Christ? At a thing where we got drums and organs and guitars and, and, and loud music? Church of Christ? I just had spell up there talking to my brothers in the Church of Christ that finally decided I might get to heaven somehow, even though I was a Baptist preacher. That was all I got out of Friday night. Brother Neal said, we come in early in the morning. I paid $80 for a motel room I slept about two hours in. I mean, we were there when the door opened. We got a good seat, and God came down. The preacher was Jack Hayford, if I remember correctly. And uh, he said, take your shoes off. Now I'm sitting there, and I've got on my Nikes. And the chair in the Georgia Dome wasn't nearly this comfortable. In fact, I was pretty much wedged in, to be honest with you. And uh, he said, take your shoe off. Take your shoes off. And all of a sudden, all these guys around me taking their shoes off. And I'm going, I'm not going to take my shoes off. Well, this is a Pentecostal trick. I take my shoes off. Next thing you know, I'm going to be speaking an unknown tongue, <laughs> handling serpents, and drinking poison. I'm not going to do that. I, I'm Baptist. I'm just going to sit here. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice. You say, was it audible? Oh, no. It was louder than audible. I heard a voice saying, take your shoes off. I want you to know this old boy reached down and started untying his Nikes. I took my shoes off. Jack Hayford said, all right, men, this is going to be difficult for some of you, but I want you to get on your knees. I went, nah, another Pentecostal trick. He wants me to speak in tongues. He gets me on my knees. I'm going to start talking in tongues. My church will run me off. They don't want a spirit-filled pastor. They like the one they've got now. <laughs> Heard that same voice. Get on your knees. I got on my knees. Hard to get out of the seat, but I got out of the seat, pushed the seat up. I got down on my knees. And, Jack, and by, by that time, Phil, you remember this, the Pentecostals were going crazy. They were hooping and hollering. Some of them were speaking in unknown tongues. Jack Hayford called them down. He said, no. He said, we'll praise the Lord in a little while, but not right now. And those of you who were there, we'll never forget it. In the Georgia Dome, in Atlanta, Georgia, on a Saturday morning, there were 70, around 70,000 men weeping. I was weeping. I was sobbing. I didn't realize it at the time, but every man on that row, I believe, was weeping. God came down in a mighty way. Most of us have never been the same. God dealt with me about a lot of things. I had been raised a racist, and I didn't even realize it. And God convicted me that day of my racism. I'd been trying to get African Americans to join our church for years. I never could. I, I, we had an open-door policy. I loved them. I wanted them to join our church. But way down deep in my heart, there were things God had to get rid of. He had to purge me of that. He had to teach me that that song they taught me in Sunday school was true. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. 
The next time we went to Promise Keepers, we carried a Jamaican pastor with us whose roots were in Africa, and we fellowshiped with him. And not long after that, African Americans started coming and joining our church. And they have been a blessing. They have been such a blessing. Now, we're still a majority white church, but I love our African American members. They are precious, and I thank God. God had to deal with a pastor before he could bring African Americans to the church. That was, and guess what? Two of my deacons got saved. Brother Phil and Robbie Tatum got saved in the Georgia Dome. I had to baptize Phil again. This time, he knew he was saved. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, he knew that he knew. I'd been telling him he could know that he knew, but he found out you can know that you know that you know you're going to go to heaven. But you have to do something. Get up. Go back to Beth. I hope you have a Beth. Where's my Bethel? My Bethel was not really the Georgian home. I had an experience with God there. My Bethel is a cornfield in Walker County. You say, you think God is still there? Well, God is everywhere. But I guarantee you, I, I could just about go to that cornfield now. It was by a creek. And I could follow that creek to where that cornfield was. And I could walk about 30 paces. And I could probably just about show you the, face where I got, the place where I got on my face and ask God to forgive me of my sins and save my soul in 1964. I hope you have a Bethel. But then notice this, and this is the only time in Genesis that God says build an altar. Now, there are other altars built in Genesis. There were altars, obviously, after the garden because Cain and Abel offered an offering. You have to have an altar to offer an offering. But here God says, go and build an altar. A specific altar at a specific place for a specific reason. The covenant is being renewed. Jacob had been disobedient. Now he's going to be obedient. Jacob is going to be so much different that his name is not going to be called Jacob, one who takes the place of another or one who supplants. His name is now going to be Israel, prince with God. There was a faithful command. And then there was a fervent commitment. So Jacob said to his family, and here it is, and all who were with him, First of all, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. When revival comes, some things have to go. Are there things in your life that should not be there? You know, I don't do a lot of social media. I do Facebook. And I don't do Facebook. I don't spend hours every day on Facebook. I sometimes wish people, if I go to the computer and wish, I see somebody's birthday, I wish you a happy birthday. And sometimes I'll post something on Facebook, spiritual. I, I usually post something about what's going to happen at church on Sunday. That's what I, but you know what really bothers me now? Some of the words I see on Facebook from people who claim to be followers of Christ. And they use words and they talk about things that when I read them, I blush. And I'm ashamed because I'm a Christ follower. It's getting to where you can't watch television anymore, even on the main channels. So many of the words that people are using ought to cause us to be repulsed by them. But you know what happens? It's like we gradually get used to it. And so what used to offend us doesn't offend us anymore. What used to grieve us doesn't grieve us anymore. I want you to know God is grieved by any sin. And God talks a lot about this little member of our body that resides here in our mouth 
In fact, James says that the tongue itself is set on fire of hell. You need to be careful. We used to sing that song, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above, he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. What's in our heart? Have we lost the sensitivity to that which grieves God? If so, we need to go back to Bethel. Some things have to go. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. When revival comes, lives have to be cleansed. I, I don't remember seeing this years ago when we went to Israel. And this time, we, most of the hotels we stayed in pretty much cater to the Jewish people. And uh, when I'd go to the restroom before supper to wash my hands, I saw something I didn't remember before. Uh, there were two lavatories. There were lavatories like we all see, sinks, with soap and paper towels or hand dryers. And then over in the corner, there was a different kind of lavatory. And it had a water faucet, but it had a pot there. And uh, I looked at it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I go to countries, and they have things in the bathroom that I don't know what they're there for. And I really don't know what, want to know what they're there for, all right? Some of you have been to Europe, you know what I'm talking about. I, I can only imagine what those things are used for, and it's not a pretty picture. But anyway, in the Jewish bathrooms in Israel, there are these lavatories, and they have pots because a Jewish man has to be clean, clean before he can go eat. And he has to clean his hands in a certain way. And they put the water in the pot, and then they pour the water over their hands, and then, then they rub their hands together and may add some soap, and then they pour the water... Of, the pot of clean water over their hands and they're there and when they do it they, they hold their hands up almost like a surgeon going to do surgery like he scrubbed in and I was reminded that is part of the ceremonial washings that the Jews do well Jacob said if we're going back to Bethel you folks got to clean up I wonder if there aren't some things in our lives that need to be cleaned up I wonder, you remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? Everybody was there, and they came in, they sat down to eat, and uh, Jesus noticed something hadn't been done, and he got up, wrapped a towel around him, and he went and got a pitcher of water and a basin. See, that's what reminded me about the bathroom thing. Jesus took a pitcher of water and a basin. Now, they had washed their hands ceremonially. They had washed their hands because that was the Passover. But when they came in, they had dirty feet. And Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. And you remember what old Peter said? <laughs> Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not one of my followers. And that really touched old Peter in his heart. And he said, oh, Lord, don't just wash my, my feet. Wash my whole body. And Jesus said something because of the Jewish ceremonial cleansing. He said, Peter, before you came to the table, you took a bath. And before you came to the table, you washed your hands. He said, your body is clean, but your feet are dirty. And he said, i got to wash your dirty feet. And the sinless Son of God, who was going to die on the cross the next day for their sins and for my sin and for your sin, washed the dirty feet of his disciples, even the feet of Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him. Right now, would you ask God to look in your life?
and see what things need to be cleansed in your life? Does your thought life need to be cleansed? Young people, do the words you use, are you one person at church and another person at school and maybe even another person on social media? There are some things that have to go. There are some things that have to be cleansed. And then there's some things that have to be done. He said, we must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. When revival comes, worship and obedience to God become priorities. What happens when revival comes? Well, God is glorified. Notice verse 5. You remember what Jacob was worried about? He was worried about all the cities uh, rising up against them. Uh, when Jacob set out to obey God, here's what happened. When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, so they did not pursue Jacob's sons. Jacob's main fear that they were going to be overtaken and massacred by the people from the other towns didn't happen, not because they were terrified of Jacob, because they were terrified of God. I want to tell you, there's one enemy against the home that is especially effective. His name is Satan. But I want you to know that when the terror of God falls, even Satan can't touch you because God puts a hedge of protection around about you. God is glorified. Forgiveness and restoration are accomplished. And God's will is done. Now, in the old King James, it says this. And when Jacob went back to Bethel, Bethel means house of God. Uh, anytime you see the word bet, B-E-T, in a Hebrew word, it means house, house, bet. Bet lechem, bet lechem, Bethlehem, house of bread. A lot of wheat was grown in Bethlehem, bet lechem, house of bread. Bet el, bet el, house of God. In the King James, it said he named it El Bethel. You say, well, what's the difference in that? It intensifies the God aspect. You know what it really can be translated? The mighty God of the house of God. I want to tell you, I have good news for your family today. If you're a Christian, you're not just protected by God. You're protected by the mighty God of the house of God. And when God is for us, who can be against us? The devil has to flee when we call on Jesus' name. I want you to ask you to do something right now. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to be honest. First of all, men, I want you to ask you men to search your hearts today. Are you the man God intended for you to be? When your wife looks at you, does she see her priest? Does she see her prophet? Does she see her king in you? You are to be to your house what Christ Jesus is to the church. You are to be willing to love your wife and love your ch children so much that you would lay down your life for them without thinking about it. Men, are you the men of God that God has called you to be? Ladies, are you obedient to the Lord? Are you doing the things that God wants you to do? You say, well, preacher, my husband's not much of a spiritual leader and it pretty much falls on me. Well, let me tell you this. God will give you strength for that. He knows your circumstance. He knows your situation. You pray for your husband. If you're single, you don't have a husband, you pray that you'll be a spiritual leader for your home. Children, the Bible says children are a heritage from the Lord. The Bible also says train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they'll not depart from it. 
Jewish people used to train their children from the age of 6 to 12. And at the age of 12, the young men became a son of the covenant and the young women became a follower of God. Are you teaching your children and children? Are you being trained up in godly things? Father, I pray you'd speak to our hearts today. Lord, I pray we'd not have to let our families become dysfunctional like Jacob's before we would turn and say, God help. Lord, I know of homes right now that the enemy has gotten into. And he's trying with all of his power to break up a home. But Lord, I call on the mighty name of Jesus and the power of his shed blood. Lord, for those that are in the sound of my voice in this service, may they realize that they have a friend, a helper for the home in Jesus Christ. And that when he is Lord over the home and Lord over everyone in the home, then our homes are going to be like a little piece of heaven on earth. Father, I pray we'd be very careful. We'd not to allow ungodly things to hinder our relationship with you in our homes. And now, Father, for those homes that are really in crisis situations, I pray that today, not tomorrow, I pray that today something would happen that would draw the people in that home back to you. And, Lord, I pray it would happen in such a way that only you would receive the honor and glory for it. And now, Lord Jesus, we give an invitation. It's not our invitation, it's your invitation. You're the one who said, come. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, Father, when we find our rest in Jesus, we know he's in control and he's in charge. And may we allow him to do that today for his name's sake. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our hymn invitation, Paula. Hymn 602. Hymn number 602. The staff is going to come and stand down here at the front. You need to make a decision. You need to give your heart to Christ. Maybe you want to come and pray in the altar. You do that right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.